0: So I'm Rita Stuti, I'm the head of the Anthropology Department here at the LSE and I'm very pleased, delighted to welcome all of you, students, colleagues, guests, and of course our speaker tonight, Andrew Beatty. Andrew is a senior lecturer at Brunel University. He has worked in Indonesia, first in NIAS and then in Java. He has written extensively on kinship. For example, in his first book, Society and Exchange in Nias, he has written on religion and politics, in his second book, Varieties of Japanese Religion, and in his third book, A Shadow Falls. And more recently, he has written on emotions, the topic of his forthcoming book, and more importantly, of tonight's lecture, the 52nd. Malinowski Memorial Lecture to be precise. The Malinowski Lecture is a long-standing tradition of the LSE department, a department that still honors the fieldwork-oriented legacy of Malinowski. In choosing the lecturer, we look out for anthropologists whose work builds on that legacy and keeps it alive, and there is no doubt that Andrew is one of those. But the special thing about Andrew is that, apart from being an accomplished ethnographer and a clear-headed thinker, he is a fantastic writer. He has a way with words which brings people to life, memories to mind, and which has placed emotions back at the center of anthropological concerns. His lecture tonight is entitled Anthropology and Emotion, Reporting the Field. I'm preparing myself to be moved intellectually and emotionally and in that spirit I would like you to join me in welcoming with a good dose of exuberance this year's Malinowski Memorial Lecture, Andrew.
1: Thank you very much, Rita, for that very kind introduction and thank you all for coming here. Um, sitting in the green room a moment ago trying to collect my thoughts. It wasn't very easy looking up at a wall display of the great and the good, Nelson Mandela, Bill Clinton, um, Chomsky. But then I spotted in the corner a picture of the Indonesian president and his uh, benign Javanese smile immediately set me at (laughs) ease. Well, anthropology and emotion. Emotion researchers, it is often said irresistibly call to mind the fable of the blind men and the elephant, each right in his own way, none getting the whole beast. Where does emotion begin and end? Is it a matter of interpretation, feeling, category, situation, response, expression, or some or all of these? Perhaps there is no beast to capture, and the whole is a chimera, not an elephant but a unicorn. Yet the lack of palpable substance or enclosing skin far from casting doubt on the enterprise, has spurred ever greater efforts at synthesis and definition. The problem, the blindness, is less in the selectivity than in the partiality that leads so often to the formula, always in protesting italics, X is the emotion. For William James, our feeling of bodily change is the emotion. For the psychologist, Nico Freder, it's the action tendency. For the philosopher, Robert Solomon, the judgment and so on through the many formulas of facial expression, semantic structure, discourse, that make similar claims of equivalence. The definitional problem can't be made to go away by putting all the parts together, because the parts may be only contingently related. Some may be more essential than others. An elephant is still an elephant without its tail. And, of course, there are feelings, judgments, scenarios, and facial expressions that aren't emotional, So how to tell which ones are? That very basic question, still lacking a conclusive answer in psychology and philosophy, is interestingly complicated by research in other societies. Away from home, not only do our common sense judgments about what counts as emotion falter, their uncertainty weakens the conceptual basis of the judgments themselves. So a new difficulty arises, what to do about exceptions? Durkheim liked to argue that one well-founded ethnographic case could prove a general sociological law. More plausibly, Margaret Mead held that one solid exception was enough to confound a universal claim. Her easy-going Samoans forever altered adolescence. Her Chambuli jumbled gender. The celebrated counterexamples Tahitians, Ifaluk, Ilongot and Utku, have all posed challenges of this kind. What becomes of hardwired emotions if the Tahitians don't feel sad or the Eskimo don't get angry? As the questions suggest, anthropology's contribution to the understanding of emotion has been both descriptive and critical. In the best cases, ethnography and critique are two sides of the same coin. In the work of Levy, Lutz, White, and Schweder, the comparison implicit in any fieldwork account is raised to a theoretical level as imported categories are made to confront awkward facts. In different ways, these authors have shown that emotions are inextricable elements of thinking, speaking, and acting, and that we ignore them at our peril. But for most of our discipline's brief history, emotion has not been a theoretical focus. Its integrity as a concept has been assumed, its cross-cultural identity taken for granted. Its empirical role in social processes either scorned or obscurely acknowledged as fundamental. Not so much the blind man and the elephant, which suggests at least a groping interest, as the elephant in the room. The centrality of emotion in human life is part of its elephant-like invisibility, imposing but oddly intangible, neither out there nor in here, fundamental or totally irrelevant. No wonder we anthropologists have difficulty with our emotions These difficulties, I will argue, are mainly conceptual, and like many of the most taxing issues in anthropology, they are perennial. So the selective history I shall begin with is of more than antiquarian interest. It identifies problems and positions that remain starting points for any discussion. I shall be tracing a history of neglect that runs counter to the progress achieved in other anthropological fields, a story of missed opportunities and roads not taken. All, of course retraced with the comfort of hindsight. But I shall try not to sound smug. This is the the testament of a repentant sinner. I shall be addressing two separate but related problems. On the one hand, a patchy recognition of emotion, often amounting to neglect. On the other, a failure in reporting, a critical lack of detail. One can underrate emotion by ignoring it, or one can underrate it by putting it in the wrong words, letting it slip through the gaps. If the problems are related, so are the solutions. To give emotion its due, to restore the heartbeat to ethnography, we have to think harder about what goes on in the field and how best to put experience into words. Now, as every student knows, the modern tradition of fieldwork ethnography was more or less founded by Malinowski. All right. Yes, there we are. You'll note the the copyright at the bottom. I hope the LSE doesn't send me a bill for that. Um, Yes, um, in his manifesto-like introduction to Argonauts of the Western Pacific, Malinowski made a distinction between the collection of data about social organisation and the imponderabilia of actual life. That is the moment-by-moment flow of behaviour which the anthropologist was uniquely able to record. To grasp the imponderabilia, and through them, the native point of view, you had to come down off the veranda, the creaking stage of old-style fieldwork interviews, to observe speech in its living context. It was the newly discovered method of participant observation that revealed to Malinowski the critical contrast between what people do and what they say or think they do. The method emphasised what Roger Sanjek in a review of fieldwork practices, calls situated listening and speech-in-action participant observation, as opposed to formal interviews with seated informants. We must bear this contrast in mind in assessing recent studies of emotion. All too often we have forgotten the lessons of the master. The extraordinarily rich descriptions that Malinowski produced would not have been possible without his clearly articulated discovery of subject, method and scope, as his first chapter is entitled, but what worked for the cooler did not work quite so well for emotion. Consider a well-known example cited by his biographer as a prototype of the extended case method. An example so dear to Malinowski's heart that he reproduced it with little alteration from his field notes in two separate accounts. This was the story of the expulsion of the chief's son Namwana Guyau from Omarakana, the. The figure standing next to the, the figure seated next to the standing chief there. Namwana had accused his rival, the chief's sister's son, of seducing his wife and had reported him to the colonial resident. The outrage that followed the seducer's imprisonment led to Namwana's formal denunciation and exile. For village and ethnographer the consequences were momentous. The loss of an influential man, key informant the chief's semi-withdrawal from active life, the grief-stricken death of his wife, and a deep rift in the whole social life of Kiriwina. Michael Young reads in Malinowski's account the sympathy of one interloper for another. And I think you can see the, uh, from the hard stare there, you can see there's a definite rapport. Both men liked, lacked rights in the village and were dependent on chiefly patronage. Both were at the mercy of colonial power, Malinowski as a wartime enemy alien, Namwana as a native subject. But whatever personal identification and whatever the deeper currents of emotion passing between the protagonists, Malinowski presents the case in structural terms as a struggle between mother right and father love, matrilineal authority and paternal interest. The personal elements that would thicken the meaning, character, plot and dialogue, are edited out You can't blame him for seizing the opportunity to clinch a decisive sociological point but the emotions, the imponderabilia have been filtered. The backstory is summary, the description sparse. His hero and literary model, Joseph Conrad would not have approved. It would be good to know what the participants felt felt in the fullest sense, how they judged the events how public humiliation affected the imprisoned philanderer and the well-born cuckold How the long-standing feud between them stoked anger and retribution. How the linking but invisible women, the chief sister and the unfaithful wife, judged the unfolding situation and were reconciled with the warring men. And how emotionally and linguistically the whole thing was framed by differently positioned parties. The sociological case is nailed trophy-like for future admiration but we learn little from this account about the way emotions are constituted or experienced in an exotic setting. We can see they matter a good deal, but the method of reporting does not let us see how or why they matter. Nor do we learn much from similar fieldwork cases of Malinowski's student Raymond Firth, an equally copious and brilliant ethnographer who limited his coverage of emotion because of a preconception about what might count as psychology. In documenting what he calls family sentiments in We the Ticker Appear, Firth warns with a shudder that the use of the term sentiment in this book implies not a psychological reality, but a cultural reality. It describes a type of behavior which can be observed, not a state of mind which must be inferred. To be fair, a late essay delivered on Malinowski's centenary does directly address an emotional episode, another case of a distraught chief's son, but Firth's analysis, which concerns intelligibility, gets stuck on binaries of reason and affect, verbal and nonverbal behavior. It doesn't tell us much about emotion, or indeed tick-appear emotion. And I say this in spite of Michael Carrither's otherwise persuasive appreciation of the case, which he incorporates into a powerful argument, very much to my taste, for the narrative understanding of behavior. For functionalist methodology, by and large, emotions were just too imponderable. They escaped the subject, method, and scope. On the other theoretical wing, one foot on the veranda, Radcliffe Brown and his followers also shied away from a fuller exploration of naturally occurring emotions, preferring what they termed social sentiments, the dispositions appropriate to a son or daughter, chief, political rival, or ally. These sentiments were cast in simple terms as solidarity, hostility, affection and respect, unmixed with idiosyncrasy, temperament or curriculum vitae. The structural functionalists followed Durkheim in their ruthless purging of individual psychology. Psychological facts had no bearing on social facts, which were the sole concern of anthropology. French structuralism took up a different strand of the legacy but kept the taboo, Levi-Strauss went even further than Durkheim in rejecting any role for emotions. Actually, he wrote, impulses and emotions explain nothing. They are always results, either of the power of the body or the impotence of the mind. In both cases, there are consequences, never causes. A strict Cartesian dualism prevented him from seeing emotions as having any cognitive content. Which meant omitting the motivations, judgments, and expressions that comprise emotions and animate social life. For Levi Strauss, emotions are mere effects. Yet, in the flow of events, effects become causes of further effects. And emotions, their avoidance or active pursuit, have motivational value. Even granted a narrow view of emotions as feelings, Levi Strauss is cutting out a great deal of what the ethnographer can observe. Since he was relying mainly on published texts rather than field notes, his examples are doubly depleted. It was only a small step from the functionalist schemas he drew upon to an algebraic notation of dispositions with positive and negative values. This was kinship drained of human significance. In a generation, anthropology had passed from Malinowski's exuberant ethnographic realism in which people and their emotions were highly visible If not a focus in themselves, to a plane of abstraction which left them far behind. As the home of what became psychological anthropology, America was more hospitable to emotion. Built on the corpus of Boasian descriptive ethnography, American anthropology made culture, not society or the individual, its cornerstone. Boas himself was keen to distinguish culture as a historical product from individual thought and feeling. What varied across cultures was the content of cognitions, not the faculties or forms of experience. Boas would not have agreed with his intellectual heirs that the passions are cultural, as Gertz put it, or to quote Catherine Lutz, that emotional experience is not pre-cultural but preeminently cultural. For his students, pioneers of the culture and personality school, emotion was a key variable in a design for living but they largely took for granted the conception of emotion and its objective status as a natural kind. Their concern was not with what emotions were, but what they did, how they were shaped by everyday routines, how they moulded ethos. The attempt to pin feelings to forms was most explicit in Bateson's Narvan, an ambitious synthesis of structural and cultural approaches. Bateson analysed stereotype sequences in Yatmul encounters, coining the term schismogenesis for the competitive escalation and breakdown between partners. This was a widespread form of interaction, he found, evident in marital squabbles, class war, even the arms race. I'm proud to announce there's even a computer game called schismogenesis, so um, there's impact for you. Um, <laughs> Curiously, in Bali, his next field site, it was lacking. Instead, a tendency to excite, then dissipate emotion, an absence of climax, led to what he and Mead called a schizoid personality. Bali was different on almost every measure, but as in CPIC, emotion, daily routines, and cultural values were tightly interlinked in a functional circuit. Clarity came at a cost a focus on patterns destroyed the specificity of emotion episodes, winnowing out the passionate individual, turning the love and anger of real people into the synthetic passions of generic Balinese, Papuans and Samoans, culture-specific, not person-specific emotions. Despite its gossipy tone and one's memory of it as rich in life, Mead's Samoa book contains not a single description of an emotional episode witnessed by the author. The technique is one of generalisation. Cases of passionate jealousy do occur, she writes, but they are matters for extended comment and amazement. Or summary, the rage of Lola was unbounded and she took an immediate revenge, publicly accusing her rival of being a thief and setting the whole village by the ears. The manner, discursive, undramatic in the strict sense, sacrifices very similitude for presentational coherence. Narvin, one of anthropology's great books, illustrates the gains and losses of pigeonholing emotions. I cite it here because the balance sheet is still relevant and because Bateson was unusually obsessively reflexive in his approach and knew very well what he had to leave out. In the introduction he asks how the ethnographer can capture scientifically what literature conveys by what he calls impressionistic techniques. The emotional background, he writes, is causally active within a culture and no functional study can ever be reasonably complete unless it links up the structure and pragmatic working of the culture with its emotional tone or ethos. But his focus on formalised behaviour and sentiments and his argument, frustrating and dazzling by turns, succeeds only to the extent that he can persuade us such sentiments do indeed dominate Yatmal life. From the evidence, we cannot really know. Narvin is famously theory-driven, with Bateson a kind of anti-Malinovsky, herding the facts like docile sheep from one hypothetical fold to another. But among the confining frames, there are glimpses of stray facts, unformulated emotions, the feelings behind the emotional background, one might say. Bateson witnesses a funeral and puzzles over the half-hearted sobbing of the men, and their relieved lapse into competitive boasting. They escaped entirely from a situation which was embarrassing, he writes, because it seemed to demand a sincere expression of personal loss, an expression which their pride could scarcely brook. Ethos, in this case, triumphs over inchoate feeling. The psychic cost of the cultural triumph, like the ambivalence Bateson found in in The Sexual Antagonism, would have been interesting to investigate. How are unauthorized emotions experienced? What subterranean life do they lead? How does the personal trauma of initiation get transformed into the pride of the male ethos? Legitimate questions, but they couldn't be asked when the object of inquiry was standardized behavior. Emotions' multidimensionality makes it a casualty of any systems approach. Subordinate a feeling to a system and you lose the interplay between contexts, cultural, social, and biographical. It gives emotions their resonance, their practical significance. And here's the paradox. The more analytical ones approach, the sharper the definitions, the vaguer the emotion, which suggests we are either victims of a category mistake or of false precision. Functionalism and structuralism reduced emotions to dispositions, mere shadows of structure. In Talcott Parsons' influential mid-century rethinking of the social sciences, emotion was even more elusive. Parsons' maxim was the irreducibility of psychological, social and cultural phenomena, each level having its own characteristics. In the division of labour, anthropologists were assigned culture, sociologists' society and psychologists' personality. But where did emotions belong? Each scholarly tribe could claim emotion as its own only by losing two of the dimensions. For the anthropologist, it had to be cultural or nothing. But what was emotion torn from its psychological moorings? The answer came in a different conception of emotion, one that better fitted the cultural mould. If human beings were cultural beings, as Parsons' chief anthropological exponent argued, so must their emotions be cultural. Not only ideas, but emotions, too, are cultural artefacts, wrote Clifford Goetz in 1962. This was a radical claim, far from the dilute Freudianism that had cramped the culture and personality theorists. But in its strong sense, it was not picked up for many years, not even by Goetz himself. In the Bali essays of the 60s and 70s, emotions appear as manipulable entities, psychological ready-mades, rather than cultural artefacts here's an example what the cockfight says it says in a vocabulary of sentiment the thrill of risk, the despair of loss the pleasure of triumph attending cockfights and participating in them is for the Balinese a kind of sentimental education this is not very different from Bateson and Mead on Bali culture shapes what nature provides what's new is the text analogy The idea that the parade of emotions forms a social commentary, a kind of native sociology. We're a long way from the thrusting individuals of Argonauts and the sexual life of savages, far removed from real, imponderable emotions. Goethe's Balinese are constructed, generic, faceless, but so the culture had made them. They lacked individuated personalities, were scarcely differentiated by name, and existed in emotionless present. A vectorless now. Emptied of subjectivity and history, they fulfilled the interpretive ideal, epitomizing texts, acting out categories, valorizing the method. No need for narrative context or even ordinary off the veranda observation. In their thoughts and emotions, Balinese were as symbol bound, as suspended in webs of meaning, as Radcliffe Brown's mother's brother had been functional in his. Reality-fitted theory, hand in glove. Goethe's bracketing of the biographical, his focus on the public forms of knowledge, on the cultural framing rather than the subjective qualia of experience, set the course for a generation. Anything outside this programme amounted to mind-reading. Interpretivism inspired many fine-grained accounts of the person that enriched the literature but left out actual persons. It was as if the concepts, symbols and models had the experiences on the actor's behalf. What was left over when texts had been interpreted and symbols logged was private sensation, amenable to neither observation nor analysis. In this perspective, individuality was equated with privacy in the philosophical sense, an anthropological no-man's land. Such was the orthodoxy as constructionism took hold in the 1980s, heralded 20 years earlier by Goethe's claim that the emotions were cultural artefacts. Contrary voices arguing for transcultural factors lingered here and there, and phenomenologically inspired anthropologists continued to assert the primacy of bodily life, the experiencing self, or other avatars of consciousness. But the dominant modes remained the summary report the case study fitted to a thesis, the colourful vignette and the generalising comparative statement. Despite a century of progress on other fronts, a tendency towards the generic, the death of emotion, has persisted practically unchanged up to the present. I will come to the exceptions, but among several objections, two are paramount and it's worth spelling them out at this halfway mark. The first objection to the generic to generic reporting goes as follows Emotions might be third person constructions, a collective product, but they are first person experiences and not reducible to any of their ingredients. Their particularity is to do with their subjectivity, their me focus. Unlike most other things that are in some sense culturally constructed norms, values, models, their sine qua known is their personal <coughs> reference. You feel anger because it is you who is insulted, sad because the loss is yours. Others may read the situation in similar terms, recognising the loss or insult, but they don't experience the emotion. Emotions are particular or they are nothing. As psychologists have long realised, an adequate account of emotion has to reckon with this primary fact. It's the first objection to a generalising format. The second is that emotions are biographical primed by evolution, of course, shaped by culture, constrained by subject position, but given personal relevance and force by individual history. Psychoanalysts have long made this claim, but it finds new powerful support in cognitive psychology and neuroscience. To quote one recent study, and I'm afraid this is a bit of a mouthful, an emotion experience is a conceptual structure stored in memory whose conditions include current perceptions, cognitions, actions, and core affect. A specific emotion conceptualization, for example, context-specific conceptualization of anger, reinstates how these conditions have been experienced in the past. Clearly a view that opens the way to a narrative approach of the sort I want to promote here. This biographical kind of particularity is not quite the same as the first, the quality of reflexivity or self-reference. It has to do with the fact that nobody else can lead my life. My biography, memories and psychological formation are my own. These personal circumstances, built over time, sedimented in character and temperament, affect, not to say determine, emotional experience and what happens between people. A psychoanalyst would say as much. But for the anthropologist, this biographical story is not purely internal or individual, much less isolable from the living context. What counts here is the embedding of emotion in connected lives, not its remembrance in the bubble of an interview. These two sorts of particularity, the egocentric and the biographical, both of them resistant to a generalizing format, pose different implications for the ethnographer. They represent the inner and outer dimensions of experience. Consciousness on the one hand, lives and histories on the other. They are filtered out by any systems approach that fails to connect the cultural, social and psychological and that removes emotion from the stream of history. By this measure, an account framed in terms of cultural categories, scripts, emotion display rules, social tensions or any other synchronic or schematic analysis will fall short. One test of any such report is a simple but seldom asked question. If I were that person or belonged to that set of people, would the analysis include what seems most significant to me? Is my anger fully explained by my structural position as a slighted mother's brother or by its place within a contrast set of emotion categories or by its expression as a human universal? I hope not. Positioning, expression and strategy frame at the context and possibilities but what gives the context resonance in effect what produces the emotion as a self-referring biographical event is its location in time among figures with similarly distinctive but interlaced histories. This is what ethnography has to reckon with. The analogy with drama is suggestive. The significance of a Hamlet soliloquy depends not only on semantic meaning, but on the orientation of characters, the state of the plot, and the possibilities ahead. Half the speeches are about action or inaction. What would Malinowski have done in Elsinore, I wonder? Surely he wouldn't have relied on semi-structured interviews. Hamlet, what what things typically make you feel depressed? Or word-sorting tasks? Claudius, please list synonyms of guilt. Or having convened a friendly focus group beneath the battlements, hypothetical scenarios. Let's talk about our mothers. (laughs) Confronted with the standard instruments of emotion research, I wonder whether our informants, like Hamlet, feel a little out of joint. They gamely answer, but what are their answers worth? At some abstract level, we might learn how people think about emotions in interviews. But not how they think or feel in practice, much less how emotions occur are subjectively experienced, or pervade sequences of action. I think I'd better turn that off very quickly. We've identified the problem, a failure to recognise or adequately report emotion, but are no nearer a solution. A parallel with a classical discussion points the way. For Aristotle, the chief device by which the drama elicits emotion is plot, it's through the unfolding of action that the that emotion is not, not simply represented but produced. The audience experiences the fear and pity of tragedy by witnessing the events on stage. But plot is only one dimension. In a well constructed drama, plot is the revelation of character. What befalls the tragic hero is a function of his flawed makeup. For Henry James, this equation is the engine of fiction. What is character but the determination of incident? What is incident but the illustration of character? In the looser weave of ordinary life, extraneous factors intervene. Stuff happens. The procession of events doesn't run on the rails of character, but expresses the vast complexity of the world, of which we know only our own little corner. Most realist fiction, James notwithstanding, is a compromise between the poetic compression of the stage and the ungraspable complexity of off-stage reality. Narrative plausibility depends entirely on the plot character mechanism, so that what people do seems to follow from the past without being entirely predictable. But plausibility isn't very similitude. What makes a fiction seem true rather than merely plausible is its representativeness, the reader's sense of its fidelity to experience of the external world, In most ethnography, plausibility and verisimilitude are differently constructed. Lacking a narrative perspective, you don't ask yourself, would this person do that given what we know about her? But would she do that given the cultural premises? Ethnographic plausibility is about logical consistency. Verisimilitude is harder to specify. When Robert Levy tells us of a Tahitian man abandoned by his wife who felt not sad, but sluggish and ill, the report is plausible, given the premises. No explicit concept of sadness, a resistance to negative emotions. But without narrative background, it remains mysterious. Nebi sees such cases as a culturally shaped misrecognition. So that a loss that we should associate with sadness is experienced as fatigue, Misrecognizing emotion is a common enough event, but the fatigue following loss of a spouse is surely unlike the fatigue following a day digging tarot. Levy's account requires the Tahitian to misconstrue not only his sadness, but his tiredness. It may be that Tahitians don't mentalize the bodily feelings that accompany an appraisal of loss. They don't dwell on the loss. Or to use Schweder's term, they don't emotionalize the feeling but only a report with time depth and biographical density could justify such a claim. If plausibility depends on internal consistency, one of the ways in which verisimilitude, especially in the reporting of emotions, is enhanced is through inconsistency, the out-of-character lapse, the capacity to do things that genuinely surprise. We're surprised by real human beings not just because we are fallible observers but because we don't have access to all the facts, the secret histories and evolutions of motive that underlie human behavior. This hidden aspect is especially significant in emotion because of its reflexivity and partial privacy. And the point holds, even in societies where the individual soul is not a matter of much interest. I think back to an event during my fieldwork in Nias, an island in Indonesia, After a thirty year reign, the chief of my host village had died, a prolonged public passing that was welcomed and regretted as the end of an era. In the hall of the great house that was the hub of village life, he was laid out in his coffin, surrounded by relatives. As clansmen gathered to pay their respects and air their grievances, the seniors rose one by one to make speeches. The chief's great rival, his deputy, who had awaited this moment for thirty years, got up to speak. He was the leading orator, a master of staged emotion. People watched his face and hung on his voice, expecting him to put their feelings into words. But how to strike the right note? Magnanimous but not triumphant, compassionate but gently critical, as form required since the dying man's path to the other world is blocked by unspoken resentment and how would he conceal a lifetime of envy beneath the grudging admiration he hailed the crowd and began then seconds into his speech his chin dropped and the words choked instead of the usual passionate flow a strangled cry stranger stranger still was the effect of his appearance there was something different about him that I only twigged when I noticed the chief's brother, another grizzled veteran. Using a homemade concoction of boot polish and turps, both men overnight had dyed their hair jet black, both uncannily rejuvenated by the chief's death. I cannot separate the peculiar emotional tone of this transformation from its personal symbolism and the situation that evoked it. The occasion demanded sorrow, and half found it in the deputy's stifled sob. But the checked words and the youthful appearance suggested liberation, perhaps even elation in his rival's passing. The black hair was a personal symbol, one that the audience registered, but whose meaning could not be spelled out. The disturbing transformation was repeated a year later, when, hours after a murderous clash between his lineage mates, both rivals for his land, the same deputy marched through the village in tennis shorts. It would be trivializing to call it a fashion statement, but the deputy's white shorts and pale, unsunned legs had a startling effect on the villagers, who had only ever seen him in sombre sarong and trousers. Everyone knew he had been the intended victim. Everyone could see he had profited from the murder, but why the parade? With one rival killed and another led away to justice, what was he playing at? I saw it as a gesture of defiance, a triumph not only over his enemy, but over death, for his enemy, like the Grim Reaper, had been stalking him dagger in hand for days. A narrative of fieldwork would have to make something of these oddities, the black hair and the white shorts, precisely because they fall outside ethnographic stereotype. Closer to parapraxis than praxis, they tell us nothing general, but therein lies their significance. They remind us that the occasion, expression and meaning of emotion are personal and particular, there being no such thing as a general emotion. And that emotions focus a range of concerns, which is why they're anthropologically interesting. In fact, no synthetic example or capsule summary could tell us half so much about power and status in neas as emotionally rich incidents of this kind. To make proper sense of them, I'd have to unravel a history of reversals and humiliations. I'd spool back 20 years to the deputy's wedding day, when the chief had barred the door of the great house, turning him away with a foul oath. I'd recover the tale, scarcely mentionable for shame, of how his mother had been abducted on a head-hunting raid and had married into the chief's lineage, a slave become a bride. I'd retrace the stories of how he had subsidised the bride wealth of his nephew, the murderer, and the resentment that had grown between them until the day fate had placed the wrong victim in the way. I might not come away with a hypothesis, but I'd have a better understanding of the play of emotion, the twisting together of envy, resentment and revenge, and of how the little half-intended details mean everything. This would not be a psychoanalytic history. Instead, it would return to the broad context which has a powerful transpersonal reality, perspectival but not purely egocentric, historical but not stratigraphic in the Freudian manner, a story embedded in other stories. If the aim is to be true to life, and what else is there to be true to, most of us can probably think of ethnographic examples that have the right qualities. I think of Jean Briggs, Uni Wiccan, Leela Abu-Logod, and Paul Stoller, among others. But I want to cite a fictional example because it brings out all the elements of emotion that only an omniscient narrator can capture. Here we have the elephant from trunk to tail, the eliciting situation and perception, the social framework and self-interested involvement, the values that frame judgment, the dialectic of interpretation and effect, the layered time perspective, the bodily arousal and facial expression, spontaneous and managed, the awkward fit of experience and category, and the implications for action. Don't anyone don't let anyone tell you emotions are simple. In the episode all these elements are anatomized, but what's especially compelling is their careful sequencing. Nothing is taken for granted. The episode, loosely based on a real event, is from Tolstoy's novel Resurrection. A nobleman, the wealthy Prince Nekloyov, is summoned as a juror. In court, he unexpectedly confronts, in the dock, a woman whom he had seduced as a youth ten years earlier and whose life he has thoughtlessly ruined. Once an innocent domestic servant, now a (coughs) prostitute, Maslova is on trial for killing one of her clients. Nekloyov recognizes her and his thoughts race back to their earlier affair. But she seems not to know him. We follow the prince's thoughts in silent commentary on proceedings. But Tolstoy doesn't name his emotions, noting only that he has difficulty breathing. When the examination begins, Nekloyov stared at Maslova while a complex, painful process took place in his soul. Then she turns her eyes on him from the prisoner's bench. Is it possible she recognised me, thought Nekloyov in terror, feeling the blood rushing to his face. But Maslova immediately turned away, without distinguishing him from the others, and again fixed her eyes anxiously on the prosecutor. When the court goes into recess, we hear in flashback the story of the seduction, and 25 pages later, we re-enter court, privy to Nekloyov's knowledge and agonized conscience. As part of that complex, painful process alluded to, Nekloyov's moral discomfort has given way to something more urgent, compounding terror with an acute self-consciousness. The terror is of exposure, of the nobleman recognised by the degraded victim, the high at the mercy of the low. The emotion succeeding the initial unmixed terror is not named, and I think this is really interesting. Instead, Tolstoy presents the prince's consciousness of evolving bodily reactions. The context suggests both guilt and shame, or rather the precursors to these emotions, as well as the named terror. Nekloyov's reaction is a rapid judgment of his own responsibility for the woman's fate and the effect on him of the thought that others may come to know this. But with his customary penetration, Tolstoy emphasizes the priority of self-preservation over moral reflection, the endangered self over the endangered soul. The terror and rush of blood are the urgent self-perception, not yet consciously felt as shame and guilt. The compressed power of the courtroom scene is slowly released in the action of the next 500 pages, so it matters to get it right. Tolstoy achieves his effect through narrative layering and minute observation. As readers and as writers of non-fiction, we admire and despair. But the humble ethnographer can extract some encouragement. The lesson is to integrate emotion with action in sufficient narrative depth to capture those two key aspects its me-focus and its biographical import, the particularity of which makes emotion what it is and explains its social repercussions. If we're interested in giving emotions their due, we have to build into our ethnography, as the best examples do, the confrontation between the teeming complexity of the world and the first-person perspective that reorders it. The capacity of emotions, as the philosopher Robert Solomon puts it, to constitute a world call it frame and focus or panoply and perspective emotions seize what pertains to us they respond to what reality casts up in the way of frustration and opportunity and they do so according to our dispositions and history yet I want to insist that neither a phenomenological account nor a psychoanalytic one tells the whole story for if, as Solomon has argued an emotion is a judgement an assessment of what's affecting me, it's also an action in a world made by others. A response to what lies beyond our control, to what disturbs our equilibrium, our goals and desires, the terrible figure in the witness box. And this tension between inner and outer imperatives to overstate an opposition must be at the heart of a fully anthropological account and can only be captured in narrative. The dialectic of provocation, judgment, response and re-evaluation however swift is not the product of a moment life is a movie not a snapshot in her book Upheavals of Thought Martha Nussbaum has argued for the case for a cognitive view of emotions as opposed to William Jamesian theories which make cognition secondary to visceral response she differs from other cognitivists in rejecting a synchronic explanation that would, in her words sever emotions from their past and depict them as fully determined by present input about one's current situation. But her point is equally applicable to constructionist accounts that compress the temporal dimension, which Nussbaum, as I do, takes to be essential. In a deep sense, she writes, all emotions are about the past and bear traces of a history that is at once commonly human, socially constructed and idiosyncratic. Those three time-bound properties have been taken up in different kinds of inquiry. The commonly human in psychology, the socially constructed in anthropology, and the idiosyncratic in fiction. In my view, all three belong in ethnography. Recall my deputy head man and his dynastic struggles. What history found voice in that stifled speech of tribute and that puzzling rejuvenation? The common human factors have thwarted ambition, sibling rivalry, loss and survival factors which no doubt echo deeper childhood experiences. These ingredients of emotion are what psychologist Richard Lazarus calls core relational themes, the abstract scenarios that frame appraisals of situations and motivate emotions. Each of them in itself is a mini-story, a story basic to the human condition. The socially constructed elements would include the record of ceremonial exchange that organises status competition among big men but also tensions in the lineage cycle, such that cousins farming different tracts of shared land begin to assert control at the expense of rivals, a ready motive for murderous conflict. The idiosyncratic history would be the dark memories of raiding and abduction, the repressed past out of which the dynastic struggle is spun. This history casts the deputy as Edmund to the chief's Edgar, the natural talent against the legitimate heir, the man of words against the man of authority. As a personal history, not a bare record of fact, it would include the hallmarks of character that shaped their rivalry, the chief's wooden correctness, his booming certitude and simple piety, the deputy's subtlety and resentment, his restless scepticism, and his capacity to surprise, the black hair and the white shorts. I can tease apart these factors, but no report of emotions at the deathbed scene could justly privilege one set over another. Take away one dimension, the pan-human, the culturally specific, or the idiosyncratic, and the whole thing collapses. With this hefty preamble, let me now specify in theoretical form how emotions implicate narrative and vice versa, how they are made for each other. In the cognitivist view, emotions are about something. They are intentional. One is not just angry at someone... Sorry, one is not just angry, but angry at someone or about some state of affairs. As the philosopher Roberts puts it, emotions are concern-based construals of ourselves, others, and our situations. A mere cognition does not always imply a narrative. Simple emotions have simple objects. One is angry at having one's rattle removed. One fears the wolf. But most emotions, and especially those with moral content like pride and regret, have a more complex structure. Schweder calls it a narrative structure. Psychologists refer to appraisals and relational themes. The linguist Anna Virzhbitska presents scripts for emotional words showing how near synonyms like anger and indignation can be differentiated by their underlying scenarios. None of these authors allows much time depth to the interpretation of a situation. The cognitive package is small. For my purposes, however, it's enough to recognize that in the cognition one grasps a temporal sequence and that in the interesting cases the sequence links persons in moral frames and reverberates with prior encounters, that the mini-narrative of appraisal draws from deeper currents, stories within stories. A second sense in which emotion implicates narrative is that people refer to shame, guilt and so on to explain past and predict future behavior. He hung his head in shame. Clear up the mess, your father will be angry. An attributed emotion is like a chapter heading. We know roughly what follows. This is not only because emotion words encode scripts, but because, as Freda has taught us, emotions comprise action tendencies. A third connection points to the discursive role of emotion. Anthropologists have done most to show how emotions are manipulated in speech, performed for audiences, and used to persuade and dominate. Research in Pacific societies has shown how emotion talk provides an idiom for political activity. In looking at oratory in Nias, I found that heart idioms, hearts that were scorched, squeezed or heavy, function as tactical levers in debate. A rhetoric of moral suasion rather than a folk psychology. Whether that disqualifies them as emotion words is another question. They are enacted with passion, They provoke an emotional response and they imply action tendencies, which is why they have rhetorical force. Above all, they imply story-like structures and demand the full treatment. A fourth connection between emotion and narrative derives from the patterning of social life. Michael Carithers has eloquently shown how our capacity to operate across cultural boundaries, or indeed within them, depends on our skill at reading situations, at grasping the plot, and at recognising, or constructing in turn, the narratives that give shape to events. Emotions would qualify as a special instance of the capacity to construe form, motive, backstory, personal relevance and consequence, whether in the snap judgment of a jealous glance or the more deeply pondered apprehensions of hatred, love and regret. For the same reasons, narrative, by filling the gaps that synchronic analysis leaves as mysteries, supplies a defence against the more extravagant claims of cultural relativism the outlandish emotions that could exist in some parallel universe but in practice don't fifth as thinkers going back to aristotle have pointed out narratives are mostly about emotion eliciting situations reversals of fortune finally emotions have as i've have argued have a time depth and a biographical or interpersonal resonance that eludes synchronic analysis A grasp of the structure of emotion illuminates not only the web of pressures and constraints but the possibilities inherent in the situation which the person feeling emotion registers and weighs. A narrative account allows for the subjective experience of free will however we want to qualify it and the possibility of reflexive moral action. Several arguments can be made against a narrative approach to emotion. I shall deal very very briefly with them. First and most radical is the claim that there is no valid cross-cultural category of emotion in the first place, therefore nothing to narrate. There are feelings, interpretations and responses, but only in Western thought do they cohere as the package we call emotion. Most languages lack a superordinate emotion category. English words like anger and sadness find no exact matches. As Fierszbitzka puts it, English doesn't carve nature at its joints. Yet, as she shows, descriptive definition, if not word-for-word translation, is always possible. And this possibility depends, surely, on deeper affinities that undercut linguistic relativism. For the elements of appraisal, feeling, and response do, in practice, hang together, suggesting that emotions are fuzzy categories with real-world correlates. The French concept of sentiment, or the Javanese rasa, different in shape but overlapping in substance, could equally serve as starting points for cross-cultural comparison. We can come at the problem from different angles. Nature's joints, as it turns out, are quite flexible. But I would go further and assert that whatever their ontological status as cultural inventions, biological states, or social roles, emotions are unified experiences, And this subjective unity, which bears heavily on social processes, is due to their narrative structure as construals of personal situations. We can leave the neuroscientists to quarrel over the milliseconds separating appraisal, visceral feedback and action readiness and the order in which they occur, just as we marvel at physicists arguing over the moments following the Big Bang. Our job is to get the the experience right, and to figure out its significance in the stream of life, to recover the imponderabilia. A second objection to a narrative approach might depend on a rejection of narrative rather than emotion. On this view, it would be ethnocentric to apply one to the other, because some people, like the Yolmo of Nepal, favour imagistic accounts of experience, or because, like Mead Samoans, they avoid psychological explanations of behaviour, or like certain other... Specific groups affirm the opacity of other minds. This objection strictly applies to interpretive genre. It doesn't alter the fact that people everywhere link characters and events in plots to comment, blame, and predict. This is true where the cause and effect apply to ego and id, partible persons, the stars, humours, or vengeful gods. And it remains true where the narrative looms large as epic, small as anecdote or hides in accusations and excuses. For as Bruner and Carithas have shown, narrative is integral to sociality. So too, of course, is emotion, and so is each to the other, since anger, hope and regret are forms of explaining, predicting and judging. Whether we think in pictures or stories, resist or relish mind-reading, speak as we or I, love or loathe anecdotes, we are all narrators, because we all have emotions and emotions tell their own story. As ethnographers, we should never forget the fact. Thank you.